Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. counts and it is the 27th day of march 2014 and as always trying to navigate you through this crazy world that we live in i will be joined tonight by friends of the show rick and i'm going to butcher your last name again but i'm going to try it strottenberg close stagenborg stagenborg all right next time man next time i'll have it (laughs) and then uh josh wiley of the journalistic revolution and our new show uh, One Step Beyond, which he has a show that runs on Liberty Movement Radio uh, from 5 to 7 on Thursdays. So you get a um, almost like a double dose of us every uh, every Thursday. So it'll be very, very interesting. He ran a show today uh, that was pretty interesting and uh, had some technical issues, as always, when we're trying to talk about things that um, the said ones don't want us to talk about. Internets go down, disconnections happen. Rick, I think you had something similar um, with the service that we're running right now when you were trying to do a show about the Ukraine, and I don't know if that was just um, a glitch in the system or if it was a legitimate, quote-unquote, glitch in the system. So well, I, I don't know either, but I can tell you that it took me six attempts to get the show on. I never got my guests from the Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I didn't get my uh, economic expert from Mexico to join me. I ended up uh, having to do one in the United States with a uh, person in the United States. And we finally got one recorded. But, yeah, we had a whole series of very strange, unheard-of glitches that Blog Talk couldn't explain. Oh. <clears throat> wow, big shocker when you're talking about things that, um, yeah, we're not supposed to be talking about. That. Rick, we're supposed to be talking about how you cannot dunk the football anymore in football, and that's a penalty. That's what we're supposed to be talking about. As as good Americans, that's what we're supposed to be talking about. So the topic for the show tonight, as um, you guys can probably read, is um, the future of the the political landscape here in the United States. And as we see, and I think that Rick would agree with me on this, as we see the neoliberal, neoconservative kind of groups die out. Um, Just to clarify what I mean by neoconservative and neoliberal, um, neoconservatives would be the warmongering uh, rhino Republicans that are Republicans in name only that will typically sell us down the river for arms deals. And neoliberals would be considered by many stretches of the imagination or not stretches of the imagination – but many yardsticks as classical authoritarians or nanny staters. So you have the big daddy government neoconservatives, and you have the nanny stater neoliberals, which both of their facades are starting to fall apart. So now we're raising the question, what do we really get in the political landscape of the United States as people are starting to realize that, hey, we might be an empire. We might be the one provocating most of these different little squabbles that go on all over the world, if not provocating them, at least funding them and kind of helping them along to put in more pro, quote-unquote, pro-U.S. leadership, as we saw in Libya, as we saw in Egypt, as we saw in the Ukraine, which those guys aren't pro-anything except for pro-Nazi from the way that I can understand it. And um, 
And so now we've created the empire that goes around the world, whether it's through fomenting rebellions, arming terrorists, arming al-Qaeda terrorists. And so now I think the American people are starting to realize through all the distractions and all the facades that, um, that the world that they're being told, the gaslighting that has gone on for so long, um, is, now, is now going away. So the reason that I brought Rick on, the reason I'm going to get Josh on, is we're going to talk about this. Where is the American landscape going to go? And as we both know, only 25% of the voting population really does show up to vote anyway. So now we're looking at the 25% that are informed, the 25% that are going to go out and actually participate in the Electoral College sham. Um, Rick, where do you see the United States going in 2016 um, from just an overall standpoint, uh, borrowing any um, any computer fraud or you know some magic snowstorms like what happened to Ron Paul up in New Hampshire, was <laughs> it Maine, where people weren't allowed to go to the Maine. polls, even though they could, yeah, even though they could get to the <clears> polls, <throat> they weren't allowed. Nah, they're, they're just closed. We we nah, we can't do it. Where do you two see it, two inches of snow and the Republican Party leader said, oh, we'll have to close these polls in these specific precincts where he was expected to get a majority. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it just goes to show you that the establishment will play games. The establishment is on a united front, whether it's conservative, um, liberal, Democrat, Republican, whatever you want to call them. Um, as they said in this little book right here, and how dare I reference actual you know, textbooks or you know, things that have um, no pictures in them. Actually, it does have a few pictures of like Kissinger and 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 other and Roosevelt and and Nixon that all gave me nightmares. But no, none none dare call them traitors. Yeah, absolutely not, because they're good Americans. Even though you have well, anyway, I'm actually going to read a subsection of that. Actually, let me go ahead and do that now, because this will actually set up the um, the idea of what we're up against. And um, if I can, Jake, let me yeah. just first, you did ask a question. Uh, I need to do some framing, too. I need to make sure that we're going to discuss this. We're on the same page and we agree on terms. Sure. Uh, to, to me, neoconservative has nothing to do with conservatism. It has to do with uh, promotion of foreign entanglements for the corporate interests. Um, and that's that's not conservative or liberal. And, and the same with uh, – and it's also not confined to Republicans. That needs to be clear. Uh, there's bipartisan consensus on whatever serves the corporate interests um, among the duopoly parties. Mm-hmm. But um, – and then neoliberalism I would define also uh, somewhat differently. It's uh, – the way I see it, and maybe I'm reading the wrong sources, but uh, my understanding is neoliberalism is a policy of – it's basically the free trade policy where, where barriers are uh, <clears throat> taken down, and this, the idea of liberalism means that the uh, international corporations can do whatever they want to maximize their profits, mm-hmm. regardless of the consequences to us, uh, our ability to make laws to protect workers, to protect the environment, uh, to protect local businesses. Um, all those things are out the window when the international corporations make the rules, and so that's how we're losing our sovereignty. So I would call that neoliberalism, and they're just two sides of the same coin, which I call neo-fascism. Oh, absolutely, and <clears throat> you and I can both agree on those terms, and they both have subsections of each. Yeah. The, the one that I find it, that is always uh, fascinating from the Republican side of things is that you do have the, neo, the neoconservatives, as I call them, or the rhino Republicans, that believe that – they believe – 
I guess, in the fake free market, in the fact that corporations can never do anything wrong and corporations should never be held to any kind of responsibility standard, whatever. I actually ran into one of these guys on Facebook that started telling me that, that Monsanto was a great corporation, that they're, they're not evil, that, they, that they're actually feeding the world. And, and I got really upset with the guy, so I just posted a couple of factual documents where they've been sued and lost huge lawsuits for $500 million for legitimately poisoning an entire community in Aniston, Alabama. So you run into this <clears throat> deal, and, and I think that you and I can agree on this because of the divide and conquer. I guess that um, well, the, the communists would call – I can't remember what, the, what, um, what communist people call it – but it's the the division of the division of the people by the ruling elite as we have them in fight with one or has have us in fight with one another and then they produce the actual fascism as you talked about before which they want us to go down because fascism for for lack of a better term means corporate powers over government or government over corporate depending on which side of the coin that you're looking at but either way it's an entanglement of the two so you're looking at something like what you had in Soviet Russia um, past the 1920s as they built up where you had the agricultural sector taken over by Stalin, where they had um, – you, you basically had supplementation everywhere, and then supplementation – government supplements always lead to the takeover of certain industries. And unfortunately, that's what we're having to fight against um, with the health care plan as well. because Well, now, before we get into this, I think I, sure. I need to express a disagreement with that. Okay. <clears throat> First of all, I think that um, classical fascism mm-hmm. is, is where uh, an authoritarian ruler who, who really has uh, control of the government mm-hmm. um, c- controls corporations, and they both benefit. Sure. So they work in each other's interests. Mm-hmm. But in neo-fascism, it's corporations that control the government. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really the other way around. But the result is the same. They work together. And they're not, there's not a nickel's worth of difference between a fascist government and the so-called communist governments that control the means of production. That's not the ideal of communism. We should, we should understand that. The ideal of com- uh, communism is the worker controls the means of production. Total difference. Oh, absolutely. And um, when, I, when I meant communism, I meant the, the captured corporatist communism. That we, yes. That's probably a better way to put it. Um, they, they say that communism, like they used to call communist China communism, that's not communism at all. It's a ruling class that sits and squats on everybody else, sucks off their labor, the exact opposite of what anybody thought classical um, communism would, you know, and that's why the American people got a bad name from it, because it wasn't truly what the word represents, nor is it the ideology that word represents. But we run into these conundrums, and I'm always glad when people stop and clarify, because we need to understand when we're talking about these certain terms that we're on the same page, and you and I are on the same page on a lot of these things, and I guess that... um, it's a potato potato in some instances, but um, I, I do appreciate you clarifying. So just to, just to give everybody an idea of what the United States has faced, even through the Nixon administration and moving forward, um, I'm just going to read about um, – it's going to be about half a page of this book. It says the Nixon game plan, as Harvard um, professor John Keenan Galbraith gleefully points out, is socialism. And the game plan is indefinitely clever and dangerous, and it precedes everything because it masquerades as the opposite of what it is, which is what we're going through here in America. Remember, war is peace. We're liberating countries. We're not enslaving them. We're not putting them under the IMF and World Bank and other um, oligarchical 
um, structures were actually going there to free them and give them, you know, um, central banks. That's so much fun. And it continues to say Nixon is well aware that most Americans fear big government. Remember, this is back in 1968. And Rick, I think that that would be a good place for me to stop to ask you a question. Do you think that the American society today fears big government? Well, that's an interesting question. It goes right to the heart of the problem, which is there's this huge ideological divide. Most people do not take the time to define terms when they talk to each other, and so they use the same terms and mean totally different things. Um, To look at it in fairly simple terms, if you think about um, people that tend to listen to Republican politicians and agree with them more often, would probably say, hell yeah, we fear big government. But there are also a lot of liberals, real liberals, not, you know, partisan Democrats. Uh, when we mean liberal, we mean people that believe in free market and freedom. <clears throat> not necessarily so much in the free market, but just uh, the traditional, what's the best way to put it? You know, it had a different definition um, in, in the past, more like libertarian. Sure. In the sense that we all have the, uh, you know, the, the government should guarantee that people have the freedoms that are guaranteed uh, as natural rights. Because, you know, they may be real freedoms, but they don't mean much if, if, if uh, people can take them away from us. And it isn't just the government either. So the government has a role. Sure. Thomas but, Jefferson was a, was a <clears throat> if you're looking for a figurehead, Thomas Jefferson would be the epitome of somebody that is a, an old school liberal. Yeah, exactly. And Washington said he hopes that the United States will become the most liberal nation in the world. And he didn't mean, you know, some mega corporation state. He meant, you know, people would have the opportunity to make the most out of what they could do. Um, That's the way I look at liberalism. It's about um, providing equality of opportunity. It's not about redistributing wealth or or you know, building a giant government. But there are a lot of partisan Democrats who, who don't see it that way. Sure. They, they think only about the times when big government made a difference, and they think, well, that's you know, always what the government should do. They thought about the Great Depression, the government stepped in. Well, I'm glad they did. Right. But that, that doesn't mean that we need to, you know, uh, that that's the model for society. We need to create a society where people have um, the right to make it on their own, and we don't have that right now. Um, so, but as far as big government, I mean, there are some rules that only government can can fulfill. One of them was getting us out of the Great Depression, when the um, corporate puppet masters were not willing to invest in the industry because there was no demand, and it was their own fault. It was the bankers' fault. So right. They did it on they did it on purpose <clears throat> in order to create the crisis, in order to get a stronger foothold in creating the currency, and thus getting a stronger foothold in government and being able to appoint the people that they wanted to govern the society and steer the society. Mm-hmm. And also to buy up the industry during the sure. Depression at very cheap prices in stock. That's, that's how Rothschild um, bought the, the British exchange was yeah. after the War of 1812. He had advanced knowledge. He went in and pretended that <laughs> he got everybody, everybody convinced that Napoleon uh, had won. Mm-hmm. The stock market tanked, and he bought it up for pennies on the dollar. He owned all the British debt after that, or and most of it. <laughs> J.P. Morgan did the exact same thing here when he called in a third of his debts, and that's what caused this big panic and caused the depressions. And when you have people that have all of these currency and credit controls, and when they have a far-extending reach, 
they can literally cause catastrophes manufactured or and whether the government's there or not if the government's not controlling the <clears throat> credit of the nation you're at the whim of these uh, central bankers and like you said at, at the big banks or the internationalists if they want to create a crisis and then come in and that's exactly what the the Morgan the Morgan family did and the Morgan empire did after the depression is they came in and did the exact same thing it's the same it's the same skinning or, or shearing of the sheep no pun intended with we are not cattle but it's true it's the <laughs> shearing of the sheep obviously you don't want to shear it all the way down to the bone but they've done it over and over and over again and it's a practice that they utilize quite often but i think what's interesting now is with the power of the internet I don't think that those tricks are going to work anymore. So the fact that we we don't really we won't really need something like a big government program to step in, even though that's what they will probably try to sell us if something does happen, a calamity does happen. I think that um, I think that we're moving towards an age of more independence and more freedom. I think that we do need to get together and find out, you know, what can we all basically agree on? What I mean, other than the fact that the Constitution is there. You know, we still do have debates over the Second Amendment and, and things of that nature. And really, those should probably be tabled until we get the financial portion of our society figured out. But I don't think that a lot of people are aware of the financial struggles, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Would, what would you say to that? I think you're absolutely right. It isn't covered well enough in the corporate media. Everybody pays, you know, I turn on the radio occasionally, sure. and if it happens to be on the news, every station has to tell you the latest stock market results. Who gives a crap? The stock market is nothing but a bunch of debt being traded around by rich people. It has nothing to do with the real economy. It's not a reflection on the real economy. It distorts the GDP, which is what um, we're told is a measure of how well we're doing. No, it isn't. It's a measure of how well the rich are doing. That's it. And, <clears throat> when, and you, when you look at the, the transformation, all of this stuff happened. The, the selling of the stock market and the, and the idea that the stock market is what's going to drive American business, and that's where everybody's money should go into, that came about in the, in the mid to late 80s where they had cheap money. And it's, it's the same cyclical cycle run by the central banks. They'll give you cheap money. They'll let everybody go out and invest and take out loans. And then they pull the reins in, and then the interest rates go up. People lose their homes. People lose their cars. People lose their jobs. And then you're back to the same square one. And then they give you this facade that, well, the stock market's up. Everything's going right along. Everybody's doing just great. And then they have the audacity to, to talk about the S&P 500, which is only 500 companies in the entire United States, and they're supposed to be the arbiter of everything in the economy. And once you realize all of these little games that the corporate media plays, it becomes very, very clear what the program is and what team they play for. And they don't play for Team Human. They don't play for Team American. They don't play for any of us. They play for the big corporate interests. So and, and I think that that's exactly where you're going with this. I'm going to see if my friend Josh is ready to come on now. Sure. Right. Well, they don't call them the corporate media for nothing. <laughs> Absolutely not. Let me see if I can. Um, let me see if I can call him up. Um, so, Rick, um, back to the original statement. Uh, when we're talking about when we're talking about big government, do you believe that that Americans really do um, really do understand that we have a big government challenge currently? 
I think probably that's more common among conservatives, people who think of themselves as conservatives. Now, but there are certain <clears throat> signs that, that so-called liberals are waking up to, um, like, for instance, NSA spying. I mean, that's an aspect of big government, and everybody's aware of that. Unfortunately, we still have enough Obama bots who will forgive them anything where or they look the other way because, oh, well, it's a Democratic president, so we can trust him. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's the guy, same thing. My guy, the, won. my guy won, your guy lost. Go show <laughs> yeah, yeah. So deal with it. Now our fascists in charge. Now, I, 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 don't, I don't mean that. I don't think that. I don't think that Obama's a fascist. I think he's a puppet. And uh, so was Bush. Bush was maybe or maybe not a more willing puppet. But um, certainly he grew up among the puppet masters, and he was the idiot son, the idiot child, so he was the perfect puppet. <laughs> yeah, and then, you have, and then you have somebody like Obama that fakes like he doesn't know how to sign a credit card slip, and then you have people like George Bush when they would go out into the public. They're, it, it's really telling to show how sheltered these people are. I know the Obama thing was fake and that he can probably interact with everybody as long as he's got his teleprompter in front of him. But I, I really do think that we need to look at where these guys come from. And um, as, as, we, uh, as we bring all this stuff up and kind of bring it full circle, Josh Wiley joins us from the Journalistic Revolution and our show One Step Beyond, as well as his individual show One Step Beyond. So, Josh, welcome to the program again. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's always a, a pleasure to be on with Rick. Uh, sorry I took so long. So it happens when you live in a one-horse town, a uh, five-minute trip to the convenience store Turns into a 25-minute ordeal being stuck behind a train, but that's the Midwest or, beho- or behind another person out in the country who wants to talk to the clerk for 25 minutes. That oh, my goodness, time. yeah. <laughs> There's something to be said for, uh, you know, the small-town America vibe, but it drives you nuts on occasion, that's for sure. Yeah, it's definitely nothing like New York City. Well, Josh, just to get you caught up on where we were talking about, we... Number one, we define the terms uh, neoliberal and neoconservative. I gave my, my definition into... And uh, Rick gave his definition. So we kind of got on the same page. I, and we both described that there are branches of fascism and, and among what we're calling neo-fascism. And Rick, um, just give Josh your definition of neo-fascism because I really liked it. Sure. And before I start, Josh, I want to tell you I can't see you. So if there's no eye contact, you know why. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what's wrong with the screen. Uh, anyway, my video is a little strange sometimes. Sorry about that. Yeah, oh, okay. I, I've got them on my end. There you are. Yeah, there we go. Howdy. Turn oh, what are you drinking there? That looks good. Uh, this is uh, an organic uh, Virgil's uh, Dr. Pepper clone. Oh, okay. Well, that, that looks almost as good as I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise known as a terrorist beverage here in a minute. <laughs> well, what I was saying earlier was that the way I look at it, Neoconservatism is not conservative. It's uh, some neo thing, some new thing that they want to pass off as conservatism. But what it really is, is it's the uh, idea that American exceptionalism means that we can go all over the world and, uh, and con- conquer it militarily for corporate empire. Now, let's, let's be clear, Rick. We're liberating. Oh, right. Excuse right. me. Speak. Okay. We, we want true free markets where they're free to screw us all of us, them and us, as bad as they can without fear of consequences to them. Anyway, so that, that's how I define neoconservatives. Neoliberalism, on the other hand, is the whole idea of free trade, 
which is a form of economic coercion, really, if you if you think about it, because smaller countries don't have a choice if they want to trade with us. They have to enter into these so-called free trade agreements. Well, they're at a serious disadvantage, and the negotiators uh, on our side have all the power, and they just uh, force them to take bad deals, and um, they call that liberalism, which has nothing to do with classic liberalism, which has more to do with individuals um, being able to achieve their full potential um, and the government being structured such that that's possible. Um, so, and, and I just said that taken together, they form neo-fascism, which is a little different from classical fascism. Classical fascism, you need a dictator, and the dictator pretty much uh, tells the corporations what they're going to do to serve the state, and they both benefit from it. So there's a, a symbiotic relationship. It's the opposite in um, neo-fascism. It's corporations that control the state. But it works out the same way. They still operate in their mutual benefit, and that's what we have right now. Yeah, no matter which, no matter which shield or emblem you put in front of it, they're both working together to benefit one another and never to benefit <coughs> people. Just, well, like I, a, just like these pseudo-communist governments, as we pointed out, yeah, too. We pointed out the pseudo-communist government where we d define the term communism, which is a, you know, basically it, it is a government for, of, and by the people. It is not, um, it is not the, the dictatorship <laughs> which dictates to the people and basically acts as slave master to them. So Yeah, yeah I mean, and there's even more grammar that can be done on that front if we want to, you know, get into the, the nitty-gritty differences about uh, a thinker like uh, Kropotkin versus uh, a Karl Marx sure. uh, in, in talking about kind of decentralized leftist uh, communism or anarcho-syndicalism. But I think that you guys have covered a lot of really productive ground in 25 minutes. Uh, I like uh, the, the grammar that we're, we're outlining here. It is very interesting to note that whether it's this neoliberal agenda or a neoconservative agenda, <laughs> They have uh, elements of neo-fascism, both certainly, uh, but the other two things that I see that, that are common between them is they both have this really staunch belief in technocracy, whether it's the digitization of your personal life or the digitization of a military existence. And Rick, I would also say that at least since the dawn of the, the kind of new left, uh, even the political left in America embraces this, uh, this meme of American exceptionalism uh, although they do it in kind of different ways. The Republicans are still a little bit more overt about it. Mm -hmm. um, but they do both kind of embrace this strange uh, Anglo-American ideal that, you know, white people should be spread to all corners of the earth, essentially. Uh, now, can you, can you explain to me what the new left is? Because I'm really not familiar with how you're using that term. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's uh, good for <clears throat> specification. I would call the new left uh, kind of what was born of the 60s. So the the Lyndon Johnson reform era on forward. Interesting. Okay, I think it's a little more diverse than that myself because back in the 60s when there was this huge anti-war movement, people knew the problem was too much corporate control over government. Now, I would say that a lot of people have forgotten that, even people who are politically active. They just don't – they look at the problems. They don't look at the root causes. And the root cause is corporate control over the government. And here's one of the things that I was going to read, and I was jumping in the section. Josh, I already read the section talking about the game plan, which is socialism. Obviously, if you were looking at the global comptrollers, the one thing that you would want is you would want a one world socialist company or a country because there's a Freudian slip for you. <laughs> it would work out just the same. So I did want to pick up with this portion of the book. And once again, everybody, 
$10, go get you some off of Amazon. What a great read, and it's only 130 pages. We're, we're going we're gonna to have to talk about some Gary Allen on the other side of this break, though, because I have a bone to pick with uh, both him and Cleon Skousen. Oh, some of this stuff is very, some of this stuff is very, um, is very transparent what their idea is. But um, for the most part, the, what I'm covering here are just the facts of the, what have, what presidents have said in the past and policies have been in the past. So, well, really quickly though, two things. One, you got to be careful with quotes from that book because I would say a good 30% of them are either completely made up or paraphrased <laughs> to kind of. Uh, I'm very serious about this. Like they're they're manipulated. Um, just again, to give quick background on not only None Dare Call It Conspiracy by Gary Allen, but also uh, the Cleon Skousen book, which is called um, The Naked Capitalist. The naked, naked Communist. Is it The Naked Communist? I believe it's an, I think it's The Naked Capitalist. I think I think we. What's can. the difference anymore, huh? <laughs> You're telling me, right? <laughs> but any, anyways, both of, oh. both of these books are based <laughs> off of exclusively the works of Carol Quigley. Sure. They're essentially the footnotes of tragedy and hope, but they're altered to suit, retrofitted kind of, to suit a political agenda. So I think it's, uh, there's actually a book published in the 70s where Cleon Scouse and Gary Allen and Carol Quigley actually had a bit of a roundtable discussion, and it was, I, I believe it was verbalized and then typed longhand afterwards, but you can talk, you can read for yourself Quigley's kind of uh, refutation of Gary Allen's work and, and the parts where he thought it was being modified to suit that political agenda because both of these guys also John Birch Society members uh, founded by the Koch brothers. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, I think we lost I think we lost Rick. Are you there? Are you there? I can hear you. I'm not seeing the... Uh, All right, you might have to click your video off and then click it back on again. Okay. Well, I'm not even seeing buttons. My Skype's not coming up. I see you on the side of my screen. Wait a minute. Well, the one, oh, here we go. Here we go. Okay. See, the one thing that I was going to say, Josh, you took the words right out of my mouth. You can tell it's a John Birch Society product because of the way that they frame some of these situations and some of these deals. Um, Josh, now I just lost your video. Yeah, the the video's uh, kind of getting scrambled on me. I can see you, but I can't see Rick. Uh, but hopefully, we can we can hear each other still, right? Yeah. All right. Well, we'll just kind of. I see both of you. I guess we're taking turns. Uh, uh, <laughs> now I don't see Josh again. <laughs> uh, here we go. All right. We'll we'll get it going. All right. So I got Josh now. Um, Rick, we'll we'll wait on you, man. I'm so, I'm here. Okay. Well, good. Well, God dog it. We got Rick on the white screen. Rick, you'll pull up here in a second. So here's the one part I did want to pull up because I think this is very I think this is very um, pertinent to what we're talking about. The second major segment of the president's new federalism is revenue sharing with the states, touted as a step in decentralization of power of the federal government. Actually, the program does the exact opposite, and we can reap the benefits of this here with the DHS and the national security state, as we talked about before. Uh, the money goes first for the states to Washington before it can be shared. The columnist Kirkpatrick says that the power and control of the federal dollars are surely as that famous lamb accompanied by Little Mary. As soon as the states and local governments get hooked to federal funds, which we're seeing now with the federalization of the police force and all of these armored vehicles and everything, the controls will be put on just where they were in education and agriculture. Once again, as I talked about before, uh, anytime you subsidize a subsidize a, um, a specific industry, you're looking to take it over, and that's exactly what he says here. Every field that the government attempts to take over is first subsidized. And if you don't decentralize the government by centralizing the tax collections, and it goes on to talk about Nixon's power to the people and about how he did the exact opposite of that. So I just wanted to give people some premise that 
that there were people talking about how the federal government was growing, but it was growing because people weren't paying attention to the policies. They were paying attention to the rhetoric, which we, which we see in America is, is still a problem that people still fall, um, I guess, fall, what would be the best way to term this? Um, fall suspect to the propaganda and don't ever go and really look at the policies and procedures that are in place as Rick so, uh, so quaintly turned them the Obama bots that just worship the, the, um, the leader of the free world, which is the weirdest thing to say in the entire, on the entire planet right now, um, which we are not free, nor are we leaders in any sense of the imagination, unless you're talking about corporate greed. Um, so it, it does draw the, it does draw a question and I'll pose this question to Josh. I already posted it to Rick. Josh, do you, do you think that America, um, Americans in general, um, do you think that they, feel that there's a problem with big government currently other than the the quote-unquote conservatives that will always uh the blue-blooded conservatives that will always uh see the government as a as a threat oh goodness i think, I think that, that americans know something is wrong something in general is wrong you know they're very dissatisfied you know zero had just posted an article the other day about how uh food stuff inflation is up something like 19 percent over the past four months right so yeah, so so they know that something's wrong, and they're increasingly dissatisfied with government and the corporatocracy. Uh, the problem is, is that not enough people are getting to getting to the root of the the information, the stuff that we discuss on shows like this almost every single night. They're uh, they're they're hurting, and they kind of they're almost like a wounded animal uh, who is like kind of uh, resigned itself to a death sentence. So. It's bleeding as it retreats to the corner of the woods to die, as opposed to you know trying to stitch itself back up and get in the fight and uh, and and learn the kind of things again that we're talking about to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, but I, yeah, fighting the, takes a lot of energy, Josh, and it takes a lot of time. I, I gotta wa- I gotta watch football, dude. Yeah, well, uh, Mar- March Madness this week. Yeah, right, let me uh, just make a point here. I, sure. I I I think that part of the problem is that uh, people do fight. I mean, people feel like that would be on one side or the other of this ideological divide. So if, if, <clears throat> if some people are being told, well, big government's the problem, then the others will automatically say, well, no. And they'll think, like I said earlier, about that's what took us out of the Great Depression. Um, that's, what, uh, that's what reversed uh, 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 American apartheid, you know. In, in, uh, uh, so, you know, government has, uh, has a role. The question is really what – what is that role? And when government gets this big, what is the problem? That's where I think we can find a common language where liberals and conservatives can talk together. And the common problem, again, is corporate control over the government. Now, my thesis, so you, I heard you say government subsidies always lead, or you were quoting, maybe it sounded like you agreed, government subsidies always lead to control of industries. Now, I see it a different way. Government subsidies are really paybacks for the bribes that they took to get into office. And, and really the people that are calling the shots are the corporations. They, are all, they pay for the lobbyists. They pay for the elections. They, pay, they put their people, they get their people selected to be the regulators. So the reason we have such a big government <clears throat> is because it's a gigantic corporate welfare state. Sure. And we, we could cut down the government tremendously. So how about that for a starting point between liberals and conservatives? <laughs> I, I would agree, and in, in the way that you phrased that was perfect, because what you see in government now is a revolving door between big corporations and government. So whether you have 
whether you have the, the, the Secretary of the Treasury always coming from Goldman Sachs, or if you have the Secretary of Agriculture, or you have the, um, one of the judges on the Supreme Court, used to be a um, – what, what was Clarence Thomas to Monsanto? Was he a, a defense attorney for them? What was he – what was his relationship to Monsanto? I cannot remember. He was on their legal staff, I know. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Rick, I have a question for you. Would it be too much for you to, to call us back so we can see if we can pull your video up? Um, let's see. Do I call your direct uh, account? Yes, I... then I can just add you to the call. All right. Uh, we'll do that. All right, great. Right, okay. so we're going to see if we can get everybody's video up here because, um, you know, uh, let's face it, uh, my hair never looks as good as Josh's, so <laughs> I have I, to. Mine used to, but I don't have any anymore. I don't have to worry about it. I wasn't taking a pot shot at Rick, but it, it was just um, it was something that I had to just kind of snipe at Josh a little bit. Yeah, but, I appreciate uh, it. Hey, well, you know, i got to keep you on your toes, man. Otherwise, you're just going to get bogged down in Carol Quigley's tragedy and hope for the 15th time, and then we're... <laughs> I just, I'll take it as a compliment. I'll Josh's video now. So. I was turning it off and on so uh, to refresh it for me. <clears throat> I think we're getting him now. I think we're getting him. We see the spinny thing. Yay, we got him. And we are recording three of three streams, so now we are back to full capacity. Sorry, everybody, if you are listening live, we are recording video, and this will be up on the We Are Not Cattle uh, TV YouTube channel um, once I get all this stuff edited down. And I think I have found my problem, Josh, and that was I was going through my Switch instead of going directly into my PC to record video which was the dumbest thing, and I know that you're going to be in the face for being a network junkie, but whatever. I'm not, I'm not here to, to take pot shots from you. It's my, <laughs> it's my show. I can do whatever I want. So anyway, let's transition. So we've already covered what neoliberalism, neoconservatism is. We both believe that there is going to be some – I think that there's going to be some – meme that goes around that's going to captivate both sides of the political spectrum and then we can all unite. I love Rick's idea that if we end the corporate welfare, but once again, neoconservatives are going to just sit there and say, well, corporations are always and they can never do any wrong, even though they have no obligation whatsoever to the people or to, um, or to the environment. And that's one of the things that I get really mad about because when I that we use plastics and all these other things that are that are made out of oil-based products, and we just dump them out in the ocean so that they end up creating a a, um, a big plastic barrier the size of Texas out off the Pacific. The corporations aren't held responsible, nor are they fine feed or anything. And then we can even piggyback that more on the fact that the big banks are not held responsible for what they do: get caught in money laundering child kidnapping, drug trafficking, you name it, and they never get in any trouble. And then they go around and run these stupid fake news stories about a guy running, running guns in California where it's okay for the U.S. government to sell weapons and missiles to al-Qaeda, but if one individual guy does it, we're cracking down, <laughs> down on those guys. Look at him selling arms to the terrorist <clears throat> organization. So... Um, what would you guys What would you guys say to that? Do you think it's a fair place for us to start? Um, summarize. You just jumped to a few different I jumped things. To three different points, but yeah, can we say that. Can we say that? Number one, I don't. I don't want to be one of these people about regulation, but can we just? Can we say that maybe as a group that we could get together on oversight and holding people accountable? 
And when people really do mess up and corporations really do bad things like what Monsanto did to Anniston, Alabama, that they not only get fined, but they get punished in some other way punitively other than having to cut a check for 1% of whatever their profits were, like what happened when, when, um, when Wells Fargo got caught laundering $370 billion worth of drug money, paid something mm-hmm. like a 300 or a $3 million fine, which is less than 1%. It's like walking out of a bank. I think that number was wrong, but whatever. It's like walking out of a bank with a million dollars and the cops meeting you in the parking lot and say, hey, unless you give me a stack of hundreds, I'm going to take you to jail. <clears throat> it's really, really sad. Or, you know, HSBC or Barclays or Citigroup or one of the other multinational, multivarious that's been caught doing the same thing, right? Fixing the LIBOR rates. That's a trillion-dollar conspiracy, and nobody gets in trouble there. So... I think that it's very I think that that would be a great place for us to start is to all get together and say, you know, the next time we see one of these corporations do something like this, I think everybody in upper management should be fired immediately. And I don't care how you guys have to restructure, I don't care what you have to do, you should open your books to the public and now you're all on watch. Because well, you know, I think that is a very good point because one of the memes that's very popular, especially among conservatives, is individual responsibility. And they say that liberals don't believe in individual responsibility. So how about they talk about, well, look, you know, um, okay, you know, there are people who don't take individual responsibility, but most of them don't have the kind of power the bankers have. How about we hold them responsible? The kind of guys that have the money to choose who gets to run for president because they need that kind of money. Um, and they, they basically end up, you know, we get to choose between the bankers' choices. Sure. And, and uh, so let's hold them responsible. If they're going to have that much power, which, of course, we need to take that away from them in the end. But in the meanwhile, <clears throat> let's put the focus on them. This is actually something that Occupy, um, uh, the people that suggested Occupy Adbusters magazine suggested the focus be on two things on the, the bankster's role in destroying the economy, and the other thing was uh, the, the solution starting with a constitutional amendment that will uh, uh, declare that money is not speech and corporations are not people with constitutional rights. You do those two things, and then the movement. And I'm not going to call it the progressive movement or the conservative movement. How about the American movement? The, the, the Americans can start working together on a strategy to take back America for the people, all the people. And there's been, there's been talks about adding a constitutional amendment for that. And it's like one sentence that you can add to make sure that corporations behave themselves. It's like you can't do things that are going to be detrimental to the economy, and you can't do things that are going to be widespread detrimental to the, to the ecosystem or to the environment. I mean, that's a really, really easy legal change, but guess what? Guess who gets to decide it? Obviously not people like us, the clergy, the nobility get to decide that. Josh, what are your thoughts, man? Well, I, I really hate to rain on this parade, but first of all, I would say I have I, there's absolutely no evidence, legally, substantially, uh, or otherwise, that the Constitution is still in effect or has been in effect in this country <laughs> for a very long time. And it's like kind of it kind of sounds like a joke because yeah, it's still on the books and everything. Let us believe. Let us believe, Josh. <laughs> But but I mean uh, hypothetically, if, if if Ron Paul were president and Dennis Kucinich were vice president, and we called a new constitutional convention and we got some some sort of amendment done to the constitution uh, in four years' time, uh, what will we have to show for our efforts? Absolutely nothing, because they will ignore it just like they've ignored all of our other uh, 
many, many, many amendments to the Constitution and, and these kind of uh, basic uh, property and human rights that are hard-coded into, into this, such a fabulous document as that. But I think that the real point here, at least from, from where I'm sitting, is that there are solutions out there, but none of them are easy. They all require either massive civil disobedience or a massive, you know, kind of inconvenience to your life, right? Like, if we really wanted to stop nuclear power uh, or, or coal-based power or petrochemicals in this country tomorrow, great, we could do it, because solar and wind technology, lithium-based battery technology, is very efficient and very, very cheap. The problem is, it's only cheap if you're willing to live in, an, in, a, in essentially a house that's under 100, or under 1,000 square feet. And if you live in a house that's under 1,000 square feet, in most parts of the country, you're breaking the law in the form of the International Housing Code. So you have a choice to make. Do you want to, do you want to overtly break the law and do what you believe in and have other people do it en masse? Uh, or do you want to sit back and cower in fear and, uh, and hope it changes through these traditional channels? I mean, there are small things that we can do that, that everyone should be on the same page about, right? Things like, uh, like the localism movement. I think that's an area where, you know, liberals and anarcho-capitalists and some of the right-wing, I guess we could call them tea partiers, are kind of on the same page about that front. And that's good. Bacon Republicans, call them what they are. Yeah, I mean, they essentially are, at least anymore. Um, but, you know, these are the things that we're going to have to start doing. It means not shopping at Walmart. It means maybe driving to your local, farm, local farmer's market. And it means maybe not paying your property taxes or living fairly uh, illegally in a lot of respect. So until people, I guess, are, are courageous enough to do that and do it on a massive scale, I don't see how this changes, especially when Diebold still counts your votes and they're tallied in Tel Aviv, right? <laughs> well, well, let me, let me just make a response to that because I think um, the way I look at it is there's two aspects to, to creating a kind of country and a kind of world that's actually sustainable um, that will last you know, longer than these, these clowns that are running it right now. Um, would make it last. And I think one of them is exactly what you're talking about, Josh. We do need to build an alternative economy. We need to build an a environmentally sustainable economy. Uh, we need to actually control the population. We're already billions of people over the sustainable limit of the planetary population. But the problem is um, to get a mass movement like that uh, to completely change people's lifestyle is going to take some time. There are a lot of people working on that right now. But at the same time, the other prong of the approach is taking control of the political process. Now, you made a series of assumptions when you dismissed the idea of a constitutional amendment. Um, the, the fact of the matter is the reason that the Constitution is being ignored right now is because the government is in the hands of corporations and the traders who work for them instead of us. Now, if you're going to pass a constitutional amendment, you don't do it through a convention. You're not going to get that in the, in the foreseeable future because of this huge split between people who think of themselves as conservatives and people who think of themselves as liberals. They're not going to say, oh, sure, I'll sit down with you. They're going to say, wait a minute, what if you get control? We're going to have a socialist government. Or the other side is going to say, oh, we're going to have a fascist government. Right. You know, a constitutional convention is completely out of the question. We've got to get Congress to pass it. How do you get Congress to pass it when it's in the interest of the individual Congress people to take that money from the corporations? Well, that's the question. If we're going to do this, we're going to change the collective consciousness of the United States, not just in terms of what kind of a lifestyle we have to have, but what kind of a political, um, what kind of a political system we want or a society we want, then we're going to have to make them understand that right now our government is so 
corrupt. Mm-hmm. And it's not one party's corrupt. It's not the other party's corrupt. The entire system is corrupt. And we better make that job one fix that. Then we, uh, my idea that I had in 2012 is called Pledge to Amend. The idea is you get, uh, you get candidates who will support a constitutional amendment of the type I said, uh, that would abolish corporate constitutional rights and declare that money is not speech. You get candidates to run on that platform for Congress. You make it a campaign issue. That way, you educate all these people that only pay attention to what they see in the mass media, the corporate media. Uh, you do this in town halls. You do this with letters to the editor. You do it with editorials. You do it at mass rallies of any kind. You do it, you do it speaking to a church group. You go to them instead of waiting for people to come to you. You cannot build a movement waiting for people to come to you. It doesn't work. It never has. So you go out there. You sell this message. You tell people. Make this, You ask. See, I'm, I'm, I have a 501c3, so I've gone around and around with the IRS about how much I can get away with talking about this. When I'm when I'm speaking for the group, yeah, I think the problem is they called it Take Back America, so they assumed it's a Tea Party group. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I've gone round and round, but all we're asking is that people, you know, go to a town hall and ask that question in public of the, the candidates, not just the incumbent, but the challengers, all of them, and. You know, we don't. Say, I don't say, well, vote for the one who says yes. Because I'm hoping they'll, they'll all say yes. You're putting pressure on them. But, you know, if they don't, then you have a pretty clear choice as far as I'm concerned. You get somebody that really wants to run to represent you, they should be willing to be part of what it's going to take to reform the system. Because as it is, they aren't going to be able to serve you. If they try, they're gone. Well, and nobody will cooperate with them anyway. We need to put people in there who say, bullshit. I ain't going to work in this part of the system. Put me there, and I'll change the system itself. Well, Rick, I mean, I think that there are uh, – I, I absolutely agree with you in theory. Uh, I mean, and I think that there are a lot of aspects of the political system that can be used to our advantage, advantage right? Things like using political candidates to spread these messages. That's a great idea. Things like nullify NSA, things like jury nullification. You know, these are aspects of the system that we can kind of use to our advantage. I guess my primary question is, is that if we are to kind of infiltrate uh, the body politic, if it were to, to reverse these trends, and I agree with you in the, fr- in the sense that this, you know, they, these psychopaths have been working for hundreds, if not thousands of years to build this system of control around us. So it's going to take a long time to undo it. I agree with that front. But how do we do that in an age where quite literally two corporations, the same people that we're talking about being part of the problem, count 100% of the votes? I mean, well, if if you have an issue that's so overwhelmingly popular, they can't skew the vote without without it being obvious. Eighty-two sure. percent of people were opposed to Citizens United. Similar numbers have voted in favor of referenda and initiatives calling for a constitutional amendment. We know this already all over the country. Eighty percent of the people, conserve, self-identified conservatives and self-identified liberals, almost the exact same numbers. They know we need to deal with this, and they're willing to pass a constitutional amendment. If we know 82% are in favor, and somehow uh, we lose an election where that's a major issue, and, and candidate who ha- you know, is running for one of the duopoly parties, say, um, uh, in, a, in a district that's overwhelmingly in favor of that duopoly party, and, and then they lose when we know 82% favor that, and presumably they have other reasonable positions too if they're in favor of that um 
I, I just think the people would be outraged because when conservatives and liberals stand together on an issue like that, then they're no longer going to say, aha, I won, because they're on the same side. The, the lo- we'll all be the losers when those people, if they try to steal the election from people like that. You'd like, you'd like to think so, right? Well, I mean, he that's what we're shooting for. You've got to have, you have a goal. You've got to have a hope because we, we know that w- the way it is doesn't work. We've got to figure out a way to work it out. That's my suggestion. Right, and and just going back to my point before, um, talking about the environment, and as we talked about before, I think that um, I think that the neoconservatives have this fake facade idea that uh, there is no environmental problems, that corporations don't cause any environmental catastrophes, that that everything's fine because of what they see when they walk out their door. It's like it's um, what's the uh, what's the term, Josh, where you have the the me-centered uh, uh, worldview. Um, narcissism? No, not narcissism, <laughs> but it's the um, egocentrism. Oh, getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, talked about in natural law, uh, solipsism. Oh, there we go. Oh, okay. So um, that's what we do have um, when people walk out into the world and they don't see there's a big tractor in the middle, you know, plowing down 15 fields and deforestation. They don't see the problem because they don't want to see the problem. Well, Jake, my, my true green lawn is very green and I mow it twice a week and it's very pretty and I've got my little peach tree in the corner and everything's, everything's great. What are you talking about? See, that's the, well, that's, that's the mentality, the cognitive dissonance that we're dealing with and I think that we need to find out a way to reach these people, and, and Rick has a great point, and, and anything to start the dialogue where we can all come together as, as a unit and say, this needs to change. This is part of the problem. Is it the real problem? No, we know what the real problem is. A real problem is having a private bank loan your government money and interest that we pay for, and all of our taxes go to just paying the interest on the debt and none of it on the principal. So we're mm-hmm. never going to get out of debt. It is an ongoing thing, and that's one of the things that I think we could all rally around And the fact that we don't need the private Federal Reserve setting interest rates, albeit illegally, across the pond through LIBOR rates and anything else and all these other fraudulent manipulations they have, like in the gold market and in the silver market. I mean, they openly admit that they're doing these things, and the American people don't care. So from the financial standpoint, people look at banking as complicated, I guess, or they look at it as, well, I have my paper currency or I have my ones and zeros in my bank, and that's really all I care about. I, don't, I care about what my interest rate on my car is and what my interest rate on my house is and, and how much I've got to save to go on vacation. And that's the limitation of their ability to, to understand high finance. Well, so, it's – yeah, well, sorry, it's it's very short-sighted, but I'd like to draw very quickly, if I can, a comparison sure. between what's happening now in America and what happened during the last 20 years of the existence of the Soviet Empire, uh, in that they're both large, bloated bureaucracies that are very tyrannical in certain aspects, uh, sort of ending in slow motion. And the primary difference is that uh, the, the Russian people, or the Soviet people, I guess, at the time, very quickly realized that things were going south, very quickly realized... Um, that they were not in a position to vote themselves back into power. So they did the only thing that they essentially knew how to do. They took these state-run factories. They ran them 24-7 as opposed to typical working hours. They pumped out a a bunch of goods, and they made a thriving black market. And that black market participation in it is what what ultimately toppled the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. And we don't have any of that in America. We don't have – that's not even on people's radars, and we're much farther into this process. I don't know. Uh, Josh. The black market is illegal. 
<laughs> that's the idea that we really do have to get over. Just like I, um, I watched a great video by Adam Kokesh where he interviewed a so-called conservative talking about medicinal marijuana. And you saw that the guy ran into legitimate mind roadblocks where he would talk about, well, alcohol was illegal. Prohibition didn't work. Prohibition of marijuana is not working. And so he basically came to the point where this so-called conservative says, well, the government says it's illegal. And, and Adam just basically posed the question, so, so if the government says it's illegal, then it's just off limits. Then we can't even have a debate about it. And I think that, um, I think that what you're seeing now with, with, the, with the movement of medicinal marijuana, with the movement of which I'm still pissed about in Georgia, and by the way, this is for every congressman in Georgia that's a Republican. You guys can really sit on this. Because what you did was play party politics, and that was BS, and everybody in the know, that lives in Georgia understands what I'm talking about. We had a bill up for – that already passed in the House. It was going to the Senate, and what happened was a bunch of Republicans got together and said this is going to make us look like we're going to try to legalize marijuana. We shouldn't pass this. So they stalled the bill, which had no – and I repeat, no – THC use whatsoever. It was all CBD oil, and it was all injection, either pills or intravenously, of CBD so that people could stop having freaking seizures. I mean, is that really that difficult? There is no, there is no side effect to it, but guess what? Party politics, as Rick talked about, somebody probably stepped in from a lobbyist group and said, we don't need to do this, or all the Republicans got together and said, well, we don't need to do this because this is going to make us look weak. And then this is what we get from trying to work within the system sometimes. And I think that with the legalization of marijuana in these two states, and once they see how profitable it's going to be, it's going to open doors for other, for other states. But I think that the dialogue is changing when it comes to what's legal and what's illegal, but albeit slowly, but I think it is changing so that maybe, just maybe, we might be able to choose what's the best medical treatment for our own bodies sometime in the near future. Uh, what would you guys say? And we only got a couple of minutes left, and I'm sorry to pose this question because it's a pretty good one. Um, you guys got time to do five minutes of extra time, if, if at all possible? Sure. Yeah, just to respond to what you said as far as marijuana goes um, – uh, medicinal use. Of, medicinal. Is it is it is it uh, medicinal up in Oregon? I can't remember. Yes, it is. It is in uh, I think 17 states in the District of Columbia, maybe, or uh, I could be wrong, but it's something like that. And uh, anyway, the the point is that uh, <clears throat> regulating the uh, uh, medicine is supposed to be a function of the state, and it was uh, stopped in early in the 20th century, and you know because of various influences, pharmaceutical industry, textile industry, um, uh, the fact that the, uh, the FBI needed something to do after uh, liquor was legal again, I mean, you know, uh, all these reasons, and to, hold, and to keep down the black man, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so all those were reasons that, that, uh, that pot became illegal, and, and they violated all, you know, a century and a half of pre precedent Mm -hmm. um, when they passed that first law that the, uh, that made marijuana a Schedule One drug, it's absolutely you know they shouldn't they shouldn't decide what anything is a Schedule One drug, for that matter because it's all all has to do with um, with medical practice and that should be up to doctors to decide. Um, but as far as uh, as the bigger question you bring up, which is you know are are uh, are people starting to see 
that just because something's uh, legal or illegal that it's right or wrong. I think people are recognizing that because they see that the rule of law is totally broken down. NDAA is, is, the, ult- is the epitome uh, of the breakdown of law. When the president, any president, not just this president, can uh, decide that any one of us is too belligerent for their liking and therefore we're uh, you know, an enemy of the state, we could be thrown in a military prison without charges until whenever. You know, it's not defined. None of that crap is defined. And it started out with authorization to use of military force under Bush. Nobody's done anything about it. The only thing I can say to Obama's credit is when he threw the question of whether or not to attack Syria in a missile attack to Congress, he was breaking this new precedent. That's something that I haven't... Uh, no president's done in my lifetime taken a power that someone else has, has uh, grabbed for themselves and and said, you know, I don't need this. This is dangerous. That was pretty cool. And and the people standing up for the rule of law and saying no, don't attack Syria or whatever reason they were opposed to it. But people stood up all over the country, you know, libertarians who are opposed to war, liberals who are opposed to war, and real conservatives in general who are who are opposed to war. Um, I think uh, they all stood up, and Congress said, hmm, you know, this could be something that affects my job. <laughs> <laughs> I think even Henry Kissinger was against that. <laughs> I'm right there, totally joking. But, Rick, I, I, I would pose this question to you. Do you think that that was a political move by Obama, or do you think that that was something that he – do you think that he thought in his – you know, seeing um, seeing down the road in his um, in his you know two or three weeks down the road, if he did pull something like that, that that would necessitate impeachment. As giving giving the fact that eighty five percent of the population was against that, do you absolutely, that absolutely not. I don't think so at all. Okay, um, they they do things all the time that eighty five percent of the public are against. Do you think they, yeah. they you know after the fact the public would have protested? How many people protested Iraq after we found out that was a war based on a lie? It's like. Oh, well, you know, there we go again. Fucked up again. (laughs) That's a very fair statement. Very fair. Yeah, and as far as what his intentions are, well, let me tell you this. I looked into his eyes, Mm -hmm. and I saw his soul. And I, yeah, I can't. I can't do a question. I can't do a question. I don't know what his. I don't know what his intention was. I have my ideas, and and I base that on a whole pattern of behavior that I can't go into now in a wrap up. But let's do a whole show on that. I think it's a very good question. Oh, that's a, and and what was your what's your MDN? I can't remember. Uh, I'm, Psych- psychiatry. No, I'm just fucking with your head. <laughs> No, it really is. <laughs> there you go. So we have a psychiatrist that would actually be able to back up some of his statements with, um, with some, with knowledge. How dare we? How dare we? I'm, not, I'm not Freudian. <laughs> it's not well, all theoretical. Oh come yeah. on, man! You can you can Skinner box Josh and I. We're fine. We're e- easily to be classically conditioned. Skinner was worse than Freud. Come on, Huxley wants to do that too. Everything's fine. Listen, it's a brave new world. Everything's fine. Speaking of which, I do have an article that I want to get to, Josh. I do want to get your take on the drug thing really quick. But this is, um, I know I said five minutes, but this might do like uh, an extra minute or two. 
Um, and this is out of Wired magazine. And if you want to talk about the biggest bunch of propaganda that I've ever seen in my life, it says, get ready to have your biometrics tracked 24-7. And this is actually written by the guy from IBM, G. Shocker. And it says, already too late to stop the ubiquitous tracking of monitoring through public through biometrics, says Peter Wagon. Of course you did, because you probably got all this technology out and deployed, and you're making billions of dollars on it. The program leader of IBM's in Emerging Technologi Technology Group. We need to stop worrying about prevention and start working how to make data gathering uh, from this. Uh, wait, excuse me. How to make the most out of data gathering from that kind of surveillance? Absolutely. We need to see how you can spy on you more efficiently. That's what we need to worry about. It says we're fighting the wrong battle when you ask us people to stop being observed. How dare we want to not be tracked and traced and monitored everywhere we go? And it is not going to be feasible. We need to understand how to use data better. In other words, how to track, trace, and monitor you better and create better profiles on you so that they can psychologically, psychologically analyze the population and then predict the movements much like they did in Egypt and in Syria. But whatever. It's all okay. I've been working on biometrics for 20 years and it's reaching a tipping point it's going to be impossible to understand where people are or under, not understand where people are and what they're doing it's a brave new world that was me actually, actually entering that everything will be monitored it's part of the reason that we put together the definition of biometrics to include biological and behavioral uh, characteristics uh, and it can be anything yeah you guys have already got some good track records of this you did it for the Nazis it's, I mean come on you guys are you guys are pros at this stuff and you did it when they just had punch cards. So I'll, I'll let Josh take this one because he would really love to, to have some fun with this one. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, essentially biometrics brought to you by the corporation that tagged the Jews for the Nazis, right? They came up with, not many people know that the QR code was essentially developed for the Nazi regime to tag human beings, mm -hmm. right? Which is disgusting in and of itself. And, I to, mean, but we're, and to find out when your usefulness was used up. Oh, look at that. You punched number 25. Time, yeah. to go, time to go for a walk. But, I mean, we're also talking about a corporation that is intimately involved in data collection, so it's no, it's no surprise, right, that they're, they're also involved in this sort of final revolution in terms of the, uh, the biometric data collection. Um, because, you know, IBM released in, I believe it was 2010, 2011, a series of advertisements based on their IBM analytics software. And it showed one where uh, it's essentially a minority report, where this cute, it's a cute little fun ad where the cop shows up for his morning donut, and he gets there five extra minutes early because his computer tells him that uh, there could be a robbery today. So, uh, and, of course, he gets there and is waiting out front, for, and he catches the bad guy, and everyone's <clears> saved. So just give your data to the NSA, America. It's good for you. Absolutely. Uh, In his black uniform. Oh, of course. But, but, you know, getting back to this drug kind of connection, uh, because I, I do feel for you, you know, uh, Rick and myself sitting in uh, two medical cannabis states, uh, Michigan, about to put on the ballot uh, a recreational bill. So fingers crossed on that front. Um, but, you know, we've got it's it's essentially uh, the, this age old story, right, where it's uh, whether it's Bayer creating heroin and then later creating uh, Dolaphine, named that after Adolf Hitler, uh, which later became um, uh, methadone, or or it's uh, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals creating acid and then later repackaging it as SSRIs and antipsychotics, or it's Solvay, uh, you know, working to de or to criminalize cannabis and then in the 70s coming out with Marinol, you know, their synthetic version of tetrahydrocannabinol nine. Uh, so, yeah, it's this age-old game. But on that front, Rick, 
Uh, I didn't know you were, I knew you were an MD, but I did not know you were a psychiatrist. So uh, mm-hmm. all these things that we're kind of talk about, talking about kind of tie into the work of uh, Dr. Colin Ross. Are you familiar with Colin Ross at all, being that he's in your field? The name isn't ringing a bell. I might have heard of this work. He's a, he's a really interesting guy. He's essentially, uh, I, I forget if he's, uh, I believe, yeah, he's a psychiatrist, and he's based out of uh, Austin, Texas. Um, but he's um, essentially worked more as a, an MK Ultra CIA deep political um, kind of researcher uh, than as a psychiatrist, and he's worked to kind of pull some of these people who are involved in these programs out of the woodwork and try and get their brains straightened out again. But he's a uh, he's got a lot of interesting stuff to say, not only about mind control experiments, but also uh, the role that drugs play uh, in that sick, twisted uh, web of lies. So. I don't know, you might want to check them out. Yeah, I'm sure it's fascinating. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's fascinating even to think about how drugs are used within the field of psychiatry and the way it's manipulated by the um, pharmaceutical industry. Um, we could do a show on that, too. In fact, I have on my radio show with Bob Whitaker, who wrote uh, Ep- Epidem- uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic in Mad in America. Um, yeah, he's, he's opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. I, I knew some of it, but I had no idea how bad it was. Yeah. Um, I'm not practicing right now, by the way. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I never considered myself a, a, a kin to most of the people I worked with anyway, though I, had, I have training in psychology. So I th- I, my job, I didn't see my job as trying to figure out how you're fucked up because you walked into my office. Therefore, you must be crazy. Uh, no, my my job was... What's your problem, and how can we deal with it? And I prefer psychotherapy to drugs. I always did. I'm with um, you. So you're you're an oddball uh, now and then. What a surprise! Yeah, right? well, yeah. I'm just getting weirder by the minute. Let me tell you. Yeah. Well, um, well, uh, but uh, Colin Ross, uh, I, I forgot to mention, he's uh, he uh, is the guy who came up with the term. Um, he changed the term from multiple personality disorder to dissociative identity disorder. And he's also one of the many hundreds of authors of the DSM-4. Uh, but he, I mean, he talks uh, exactly about not only what you're talking about, what, but what we were talking about earlier with, with the drugs where, you know, certain, certain drugs, especially ones that are very beneficial are the ones that are prohibited, especially since you can grow them in your own house. And, you know, well, you these, get them or you can get them off of cow poop. Yep. Beneficial as well. Yeah, I mean, holy crap, right? Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah for lack I don't of know time. about holy. I, I don't belong to that church, but I have uh, <laughs> I have been to some of their services. <laughs> <laughs> but that would I would actually really love to do a show on that because of the because I think that I think that the audience might not understand where we're going with this, but um, was it the study? What was the study called, Josh? Where they had the, the, the Good Friday experiment? Thank you. I knew you were going to come up with that because I was just struggling with it. But the Good Friday experiment is a prime example of what uh, entheogenic experiences can actually help with um, can actually help with spirituality. And once again, if you're looking to create an amoral society, what would you like to do? Well, you don't want to have anybody running around preaching that there's something beyond this, that there's something that governs this entire globe and world and universe that we live in called natural law or moral law or you know good manners as the as I guess they they call it here in the south where you always used to have good manners which basically meant treat people the way that you want to be treated don't disrespect anybody that you don't know and definitely don't poo-poo somebody's idea just because it differs from yours because everybody has different perspectives so 
if you understand that these laws do really govern us and they do come back on you, whether it's on a time delay or whether it's instantaneous, then um, that's the kind of society that you need to create, and you need to create it through spirituality, religion, if you want to call it that, not uh, organized um, megachurch religions where they talk about how the the Muslims are going to come over here and blow us up all the time, and that we need to fight another crusade, but it's in the in the minds of the people, um, not you know not putting words into these megachurches' mouths or anything, but um, they do teach. Um, they do teach, I guess, an inaccurate doctrine of um, of Christianity, and that would be, a, a, once again, another fascinating topic for us to all talk about. So um, briefly, before you guys go, um, everybody plug their stuff where everybody can find you, and then um, once we get off the air, I would like to schedule some time with both of you where we can have those uh, discussions on those podcasts, because I think that that would be beneficial for people to, to hear a discussion like that, even though you probably heard them before. Um, always nice to. Uh, you never know when the when the um, when the bat's going to hit you in the head. So that's a really. Well, bad. if they haven't heard you, me, and Josh discuss it, they haven't heard the conversation. That's yet. correct. <laughs> so I'll start with you, Rick. Um, where can people find your work? And um, and I do have to plug that your um, your Facebook group is one of my favorites to frequent, just because you have a an extreme an extreme diversity of people and uh, diversity of ideas, and that's what, that's what the revolution of the collective consciousness is about, taking in these different ideas and different, um, different points and different perspectives and, and really contemplating them and doing self-evaluation and finding out if your identity that you've created and your worldview that you've created is really your own or if it's a product of somebody else's programming you. Uh, not to bring up um, Skinner again, but there we go. Well, no, I mean, Skinner definitely has his place. I just uh, object to his idea that uh, understanding the mind isn't important because we're all stimulus response. Where's, where's free will in that? That's, that's sick. I 100% agree. Once again, getting back yeah. to oral law or natural law right there. So anyway, yeah, it's the, the group Facebook group is Soldiers for Peace International, and I have a website, soldiersforpeaceinternational.org. I have a blog there, and I have a link to my radio show, SFPI Radio. Also, have another one, Taking Back America, which is for my nonprofit, Take Back America for the People. It's all on the website, though, uh, Soldiers for Peace International. I just want to say, you know, I'm really glad that you described that way what the value of being in uh, Soldiers for Peace International on Facebook is because you really don't know if your ideas even make sense, if they're even internally consistent, unless you test them by putting them out there for other people. Of, come from totally different cultures, totally different religious backgrounds or no religious background, um, and putting them out there in a respectful way, saying, this is what I think, and having people respond respectfully. We don't keep people in the group who, aren't, who are disrespectful, and very, very few people ever join the group who are disrespectful because they get the culture right away. That's also the way I do my radio show. Um, I have people I don't always agree with, tend to agree with them, though, because I'm really looking for well-informed people, and well-informed people tend to agree, you know, even if they do have different uh, ideological ways of looking at the world. And we learn from each other. That's the whole reason I got uh, Soldiers for Peace International going. One more thing about that. What really started it, though, was I got this idea when the Persian Gulf War broke out. I'm like, how in the hell can we fall for this again so soon after Vietnam? I'm like, I could not believe it. It literally drove me crazy. And I said... What can we do about this? If everybody thinks that that war should end, that we should, you know, the greatest thing that could happen to mankind is ending war, then why don't we just 
admit that it's possible because it's really up to us. Mm-hmm. And, but people don't get that. They assume, so many people assume that war is inevitable that that makes it a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I encourage people to join Soldiers for Peace International and um, have a conversation about how we can form a united international front against fascism and war. Oh, that sounds like a fantastic – I'd be on board for that. And um, I, I, would, I would 100% agree with what you say, Rick, and the fact that when you do post something or when you read people's ideas in there, there are no ad hominem attacks. It is definitely utilizing the trivium in many different ways where people define their grammar, define their logic, and then define their rhetoric, and then you can agree to disagree, and you can give your perspective. So it's a very fun forum to be involved in, and if you're any somewhat of a political, politically savvy person and you want to challenge your own political ideology, then I highly recommend joining it and um, checking out the posts because they are, like I said, um, scattered all throughout the, the world and, um, and ideas and, and, and thoughts from, from many different directions and it will definitely stimulate your brain, so I'm always up for something like that. So, Josh, where can we find your stuff? And more importantly, when is our video coming out? Ha <laughs> ha! And we're not live, so it's okay. It's okay, a- well, before that, I do want to say that everyone should subscribe to Soldiers for Peace International, at least on Facebook, even if you don't want to participate, because you guys put out uh, a great deal of fairly regular content. Uh, so it's almost kind of uh, like a good news ticker if you're on Facebook a lot. There's a lot of thought-provoking things that you guys release. Uh, so, yeah, please go subscribe to that. But uh, as for myself, uh, my name is Josh Wiley, and you can find all of my work, my articles, my podcasts, the archives of our radio programs on journalisticrevolution.com, uh, all one word. We've got uh, – we're on Facebook as well. Um, we put, I put out, I guess, a, a biweekly podcast series, and I have a radio show on libertymovementradio.com from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're on right after the Jack Blood show. Um, but Jake uh, and I actually have uh, been working on a video series entitled One Step Beyond. Uh, and right after we get off this call, I got to hang up and uh, get back to the, the proverbial dark room because we're editing about two and a half hours worth of video footage for, the fir- for this first episode. Uh, and it's a primer on the Anglo-American establishment. That should be out certainly no later than Saturday. Uh, been kind of getting uh, having some other external conflicts come up that have taken me away from uh from that work but uh and josh get- like myself he's a perfectionist so he's probably redone it 17 or 20 times oh you absolutely you know it um, five but minute, my five minute video literally took me six hours to make yeah but, but it's it's hard because it's such a long video that it's really information dense and we want to make sure that all the sources are there for everyone who watches it whether 50 people watch it or 500 people or 5,000 people watch it we want to make sure that you can either go to jake's site we are not cattle.net or my site at journalisticrevolution.com and click through the links as they're watching the video so you can kind of you know use your own bullshit detector on us because we need that from time to time too, right? Absolutely, and you know all the stuff that we talk about in there is all verified, and it's all whether it's through whether it's through the Reese Committee or whether it's through you know governmental documents, whether it's through Tragedy and Hope, which we reference quite a bit, which is a it's a great reference point for anybody that wants a crash course in what really happened throughout history and not just the um, McMullen. Uh, publishing stuff that you read all throughout high school and you're conditioned to believe that the World War II was this way and that World War I was this way. And leaves uh, Jake, I don't, have to, I don't have to read primary documents. You just tell me and I believe. Oh. That's the American dream. <laughs> That's the American dream. Yeah, I don't even know why they bother having multiple choice tests. Why not just tell you what you're supposed to think on the <laughs> test? <laughs> and you're true, true false, the entire thing. 
that's very funny. And what's very funny that both of you guys mentioned that. Uh, my wife's a school teacher, and that's literally what happens. Just tell us what we need to know for the test. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's very. Uh, I guess you know, once you take away the the art of the trivium method, I guess, then you really do put education into a box where it is. Um, give me the program stimulus, as Skinner would say, and then I shall return you the program response that you or desired response that you want, which would be the vomiting up of the multiple choice answer that you best described to me as the proper answer. And as we all know, there is no such thing as coincidental history, but um, the history books would like to tell you that everything just happens for a reason, and all the Nazis just get mad at the Jews, and that's what happened. So anyway, they, um, my stuff obviously is at wearenotcattle.net. Everybody, please like my YouTube channel. I have got a few subscribers right now, and if you want to take a extra step into the reality-based frame that we live in, please watch my video interview of um, Thomas Campbell, uh, former former um, gosh, what was he? Former director of Space Command for for the United States. Um, former NASA um, risk analysis uh, analyzer. So basically, he would do run all the algorithms and wonder if the space shuttle was actually going to get back or not. So very, very smart intellectual guy, and he challenged his own belief through meditation and um, his own self-reflection and came up with an incredible theory called the My Big Toe Theory, which is a basically a composite between uh, Newtonian physics and um, Einstein's theory of relativity, and he basically bridges the gap between the two of those. Fascinating interview, and in two weeks I've gotten over 400 views, so please go there, watch it, um, like it, share it with people you know, people you like, and people that you love to create the stimulus that we need in order to shift the cognitive consciousness that we all have within us, and we all are collectively together. And that's um, that's about all I have. So everybody, once again, thank you so much for listening. Um, obviously, nobody's listening live, but if you're watching this video, thank you so much. Share it with people you know, people you like. If you think the info is great, great. If you just say so in the comments. If you think the info is garbage, as Josh said, if you want to go ahead and tell us that we've got our bullshit detectors on and they are going off rapidly, then let us know that you think that we're both full of crap. So um, that's it for the show, everybody. Remember, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. Thank you to both of my guests. As always, stimulating conversation from both of you, and um, I look forward to having you guys on really soon to talk about those other topics that we bounced around today. So thanks for listening, everybody. Peace, love, and liberty, I guess.